0: Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Are you ready for some football? Well, Walters is, and Walters has all of the games for you all weekend long. Reservations are limited and can be found on all Walters social media channels.
1: Walk-ins will also be available, but will be on a first-come, first-served basis. So don't get left out and make your reservation today.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Bell, two times up, two walks drawn. He waits on Howard's 0-1. Here it is. Swing a long drive, left center field. This one is crushed. Way back toward the wall it goes, and it is gone. Josh Bell with a long home run in his return to PNC Park. His 26th of the season makes it 3-1. That one lands down in the Nationals' bullpen. It will be a great souvenir for Josh Bell as he takes Howard deep on a line smash over the 4-10 mark. Here's the pitch, swinging a shot base it down the right field line and the game is over. Gabble scores and there will be no extra innings tonight. Keep Brian Hayes being chased down by
0: his Pirates teammates as fireworks blast off from beyond center field at PNC Park. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 11th, 2021, what is of course the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We remember all of those who died on that day and who ended up dying because of that day. We think of those who suffer because of that day, and we honor and thank our military. Along with Nats insider, Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So there are very few teams in the majors with a worse record than that of the Nationals. The Pittsburgh Pirates are one of those teams, and the Nats on Friday night of being in a route to a quick, no-drama, series-opening victory at the Old Buccos instead suffered a gut punch of a loss, if in fact there is such a thing, As a gut punch of a loss when you're in last place in September. But a 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates. Josh Rogers pitched well. The ex-Pirate Josh Bell Homered, but then Patrick Murphy and Alberto Baldonado combined to give up two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning, although both runs were charged to Murphy, who was about (laughs) as much of a mess as you will see a reliever be. This was Patrick Murphy's first career regular season save chance. Mark, it may well be Patrick Murphy's last save chance, at least for a while.
3: He
1: didn't have it out. Well, his first two pitches were good, got ahead in the count, 0-2, a couple of sliders, and then it fell completely apart after that. And that's one of those that you just, you know, he's not going to rediscover it. Probably the first wild pitch was my clue that it's just not going to happen tonight for him. And I know everyone's wondering, why is he pitching the ninth inning? Where's Kyle Finnegan? I had the same question as well, I asked Tim Bogar, who was filling in as manager for Davey Martinez, who was suspended for this game. I know we're going to get to that. What was going on there? And he said Finnegan just was not available, not because of an injury, but because of his workload. Definitely workload. It's just, well, Ben's been taxed and, uh, you know, everybody needs a couple days here and there. And uh, tonight was one of those nights for Finney. And if you look back at how he pitched, now he didn't pitch on Thursday in Atlanta. Typically you would say, okay, a day off, then he's good the next one. But he threw 18 pitches on Wednesday, 30 pitches on Monday, and then remember he threw both ends of a doubleheader against the Mets the previous Saturday. So it's essentially four appearances there in the last, what, six days. It's a lot of workload. They're obviously trying to be careful with these guys. They tell them, be honest with us. How do you feel every day before a game? I'm assuming Finnegan went to them and said, I don't have it today. So I find it it's hard to fault him. For stepping up and saying it. We praise guys, you know, for being tough, but we also get upset at them when they insist they can pitch when it turns out they're not feeling 100% because that can lead to injury. So that's why they're in the situation they're in, and it was not pretty to watch because of it.
0: Yeah, I do wonder if the Nats were in contention, if we might have seen Finnegan. But, you know, given the state of the season, I don't think anybody has a problem with Kyle Finnegan being rested and the Nats perhaps being, you know, overly cautious with Finnegan. Like, that's fine. You know, you don't want to get a guy injured in a game like this in September. You know, it was really interesting, though, watching Murphy struggle like he was. And look, maybe this would have happened regardless of the inning But, you know, there is that thing of the ninth inning is different. And it's something that is said by a lot of former players. And sometimes you want to roll your eyes when you hear that. But I do think there is something to that, or at least there can be something to that for some people. Now, there are other people who will tell you it doesn't matter. We interviewed Chad Cordero on this podcast a while ago. He said ninth inning, eighth inning, seventh inning. It really didn't matter to me. And that gets kind of overblown. But for other people, it's maybe a thing. And Patrick Murphy, he just looked all out of sorts. Like I said, this was his first career Regular season save chance. He comes into the game, bottom of the ninth inning. Matt's nursing a one-run lead at 3-2. And he really was a wreck. He ultimately gets charged with two runs in a third of an inning. Gives up a leadoff single to Anthony Alford on an 0-2 pitch off. Like Mark said, those first two pitches being good. But then Murphy issues a wild pitch. Then Murphy issues a four-pitch walk of Ben Gamble. Then Murphy issues a second wild pitch. See, when you're talking Patrick Murphy wild pitches in this ninth inning, you have to be specific because there was more than one. And then Murphy uh, does get Cole Tucker to pop out to Alcides Escobar in very shallow left field. And then he got yanked. That was it. And if not for the three batter minimum rule, I would think we would have seen Alberto Baldonado sooner. But uh, Patrick Murphy was forced to be out there for at least a little while.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's among the reasons that I've never liked this rule. If you have a pitcher who comes in and he clearly doesn't have it and you're only two batters in, I don't think it's right that he should have to stay in, especially with the game on the line. Now, that didn't, I guess, matter in the end because he got the third guy out. But after the second wild pitch, for sure, it was like, oh my God, what are we doing here? I thought maybe they would even just have him intentionally walk Tucker and then bring in Baldonado to face Moran with the bases loaded. So they let him pitch to him and he did get the out, which, you know, that's good. But back to your, your other point, I agree and I've seen it and I've heard it from a handful of relievers over the years that some of them are not able to treat the ninth inning the same as others. What Chad Cordero was able to do and what a lot of the best ones can do is to not think of the ninth inning as being any different. That's what makes a good closer is to not let the moment become too big. Well, some of them, if you've been used to pitching in lesser situations or earlier in a game and all of a sudden you're on the mound in the ninth for the first time with a one-run lead, they're not able to sort of forget about the fact of what situation they're in They let the moment become too big, just like a hitter sometimes with, you know, the bases loaded as opposed to batting early in the game with nobody on. It is a different situation. The best ones can treat them all the same way, but some of them aren't able to do that. And this may have been a case of that because this wasn't just like, oh, he's just kind of missing with his pitch. Like he was off completely. And once he lost it, he could not regain it.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a psychological aspect, too, of you think you may not have it. You go out there and you initially don't have it. Then you start worrying, oh my gosh, I don't have it. And it becomes this sort of a self-manifestation thing, you know, and, and, and you sort of almost will yourself into not having it because you're so open to the possibility of yourself not having it. And I know that's a lot of like psycho babble there, but I do think that there is something to that. And, you know, we don't know what was going on in Patrick Murphy's mind, but I don't think anybody would be surprised if that's what was happening. Now, again, he has a history of control problems. So this might've happened in the bottom of the fourth inning on Friday night, but man, that was not pretty to watch. And, you know, it's, you kind of feel bad for the guy. Like he was struggling out there, no doubt. And then Alberto Baldonado comes in and I thought what the story of the game might end up being is, wow, Alberto Baldonado pulls off another escape back because he's been really good, albeit, you know, in, in limited work here in these high leverage spots. So Baldonado comes into the game, bottom of the ninth, runners on second and third, one out, Nats up three, two, but unfortunately, Alberto is human. Well, he doesn't give up any official runs on his account, but he allows two inherited runners to score, gives up a one-out RBI ground out to Colin Moran, and then Baldonado gives up the two-out walk-off single to keep Ryan Hayes down the right field line. And that's it. And a game that, for the longest while, looked like it was going to be a Nats win, easy-breezy, you know, quick game, ends up being a tough loss to take. Like, I know these are two bad teams, but, jeez, uh, that unraveled quickly for the Nationals.
1: Yeah, and look, we can sit here and say, oh, well, the results don't matter. This team is rebuilding. Who cares anymore? I can tell you the guys in that clubhouse care. Okay, they absolutely do. And for anybody out there, because I get a few chuckleheads on Twitter who reply with things suggesting that they're like tanking and like literally trying to lose the game. No, people, they're not doing that. They are trying to win games. They understand they're in a rebuilding situation right now, and maybe there are certain decisions that you make or don't make because of that. Like yes, if they're in the middle of a pennant race, Kyle Finnegan probably says to the coaching staff, "I can go tonight. I'm good for you." But because of the situation they're in, he's going to say, "Yeah, you know what? Probably not." But they're still trying to win games. They're putting the people they think are best for those scenarios out there. Now, the one strategy, I mean, let's let's go ahead and break this all down because what else do we have to do? The one strategy question I had there was with second and third and one out, would you intentionally walk Moran and try to set up a double play or at least a force out at any base? And what is at this point, you're still up a run. So double play can end the game. I asked Tim Bogar that and his answer was
2: No, I like the lefty lefty matchup. I you know, I figured um, you know, we could walk in, but um that gives us little little uh, room for error with throwing strikes and and um I just want to go right at him. I thought it was a really good matchup and he made a really good pitch first pitch, got him a chase. He just didn't get fastball high enough and he hit the ground ball short. So um it is what it is. I thought Baldy Baldy threw the ball well.
3: You
1: can agree with that, disagree with that. I sort of felt like maybe A bases loaded situation might have been better there. I mean, he winds up getting a ground ball that if the bases are loaded, they might turn two instead of just getting the one and the tying run scores. But, you know, Baldonado did all right. He didn't blow the game for them. Murphy blew the game. Baldonado just happened to be the guy on the mound when the tying and winning run scored.
0: Yeah, not to plummet too deep into the depths of talking Nationals pirate strategy from a September game, but I agree. I would have loaded the bases because you set up the ideal scenario, which is that game-ending double play. And you didn't have that ideal scenario on the table with that at-bat for Baldonado against Key Brian Hayes. And I just I felt like, okay, when in doubt, to say to yourself, what's the absolute best-case scenario here? The absolute best-case scenario is a game-ending double play. So, So allow for that possibility. Because if that happens, then you're out of this. And Patrick Murphy's completely off the hook. But they didn't have that, and the Nats end up losing the game. And the shame of this game, in a lot of ways, is that Josh Rogers ends up pitching quite well in this game. Now, the Pirates are really bad. We get it. You have to note that. But, you know, Josh Rogers really has no business pitching for the Nationals right now. So if you want to say, well, the Pirates aren't very good, OK, but what exactly is Josh Rogers? And he goes out there and he pitches a pretty good ball game, I thought, on Friday night. And this is now kind of two for two for Josh Rogers. Remember, made his first start for the Nationals this past Saturday evening in game two of that doubleheader against the Mets at Nationals Park. The final line looked worse than the performance. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. He was better than that in that game. That was in that 4-3, seven-inning win over the Mets. And Rodgers in this 4-3 walk-off loss at the Pirates on Friday night, two runs in six and two-thirds innings. Now, he gave up eight hits, including a home run. He did have just one strikeout, but he only issued one walk. He threw 55 strikes on 82 pitches, and for a good chunk of that game, he was, dare I say, paulo Espino-like. He was throwing strikes. He was working quickly. He was doing exactly what you would want to see. He's so entertaining to watch because he's got that body-rocking thing going on, and he, you, know, you get the sense like he's having the time of his life out there. Good for Josh Rogers uh, doing a nice job on Friday night.
1: So do you remember Ray Miller, the famed pitching coach of the Orioles and later on the Pirates and the Orioles manager at one point? He always had a saying in his philosophy, it's three things, work fast, throw strikes, change speeds. I think he would have liked Josh Rogers, the way he's gone about this the last two games. And it's a joy to watch that. It's so refreshing, especially compared to some of these other guys that we see who nibble and take their time and... Try to pick off a guy at second base over and over. I'm not referring to anybody in particular, maybe, from this game on uh, Friday night. Not a Pirates reliever in the eighth inning who turned that into the most interminable half inning in baseball history. But I digress. I love the rhythm. It keeps your defense on their toes. Like, they love playing behind a guy like that who does that. Now, he's pounding strikes. Now, the Pirates are pretty aggressive, and they're making some quick outs against him. And there were some balls that were hit kind of hard against him, but it was effective. And it worked. And my only little nitpick here, we're going to keep going in the weeds here and talk strategy about Pirates-Nats on September 10th. And that was, I didn't love him coming back out for the 7th. The pitch count was really low, 70 pitches. But he was hit kind of hard in the 6th. There were some drives to the warning track, a lot of fly balls, and felt like you're pressing your luck to send him back out for the 7th. And sure enough, leadoff Homer, another couple fly balls. The infield single from old pal Wilmer Defoe, and then that was the end of it for him. So I don't know if it changes the outcome of the game, and I don't even know who was available out of the bullpen. That may have been part of the equation there, but in a perfect world, I think I would have pulled him after six innings.
0: Yeah, I think again, if the game mattered, he probably would have been pulled, but especially given the state of the bullpen, they see what he can do, and uh, he gives up that uh, opposite field leadoff shot to Anthony Alford to right field in that bottom of the seventh inning. The other run that Rogers gave up came in the bottom of the third, leadoff double by Cole Tucker, and a one-out RBI sack fly by Key Brian Hayes.
1: Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202 525 7471, or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K.
2: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data standing ovation from most of the pirates fans and josh took his helmet off and uh, waved to all areas of pnc park as he steps in from the right side of the plate
0: well again a shame of the game is josh rogers pitching well the nats not winning another shame of the game is uh, the revenge of Josh Bell, the ex-Pirate, with another home run, another game in which he gets on base multiple times. Two more walks for Josh Bell. Uh, I've noted this. He's walking a lot more lately. Been very nice to see this. The rise of Josh Bell this season continues. He, on Friday night, goes one for two with a solo homer and the two walks. Top of the first draws a two-out, four-pitch walk. Top of the third draws a two-out, six-pitch walk. And then in the top of the sixth, a one-out solo homer to left center field, putting the Nats up 3-1. This is another 400-foot-plus home run for Josh Bell, this one going a projected 429 feet per stat cast. He is locked in right now. He looks so good, so comfortable. You have a feeling when Josh Bell is batting that something good is going to happen, and uh, he is hitting some tape measure shots, and he hits another one on Friday night against his former team.
1: And he said that one was probably the best right-handed swing he's had all year, you could see. That and I asked him, I mean, that was, that's the tightest corner, the farthest away point in that ballpark, 410 feet to the little north side notch there in left center. And he said he had never hit one that way, at least not right-handed in all his time there. So that's arguably one of the best swings of his career right there. And that tells you something. He is looking really good. I love the walks that he's taking. Like you said, he's he's picking the right pitches to swing out and he's causing damage on the ones he does. Uh, swing at and the OPS. Remember, just a couple days ago, we said the OPS was up to 800 for the first time. It's up to 812 now. So, I mean, there's still 21 games to go and an opportunity, maybe an outside shot at 30 homers and an OPS well over 800 and a slugging percentage approaching 500. This is turning into a really good season for him and. It was nice to see him do that in that ballpark. He got the good ovation when he came up to bat for the first time. And he looked pretty relaxed, both during the game and afterwards talking to us. He was smart. I know they took the loss, but he was in a good mood. And I just wonder if there's a certain comfort for him going back there and having that kind of game.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, it, It certainly seemed to be the case. Josh Bell, by the way, with the 26 home runs now, is alone atop your Nationals home run leaderboard for the season, as finally, Kyle Schwarber can no longer lay claim to being among the Nationals leaders, at the very least, In terms of home runs this season, it is Josh Bell at 26 and then Kyle Schwarber and Juan Soto at 25. So no worries, Nats fans. You're not going to have to say that Kyle Schwarber ended up leading the team in some form or fashion in home runs on the year. It's amazing, right? So many things change over the course of a baseball season. We came into the season saying, all right, Josh Bell will play first base about 75% of the time. You know, Zim will play against lefties. It's been Josh Bell, you know, it feels like certainly lately, like 100% of the time. But Bell has earned it. He hits both right-handed and left-handed pitching. Like, I think that's one of the really encouraging things and big takeaways from his season. This guy is not someone who you look at and you say, well, you know, if uh, a lefty's pitching, you're in trouble with Josh Bell. No, he's doing just fine from both sides of the plate this season.
1: Yeah, and I think that combination plus the defense that he's shown much improved is what could prompt the Nationals to say, we don't necessarily need a Ryan Zimmerman next year. You know, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. And if Ryan Zimmerman wants to return, they will find a way for him to return. But Bell's numbers against lefties, it's twelve OPS against lefties now. So just as good against lefties as righties. Batting average is much lower, 228. But he's hit nine homers off lefties. And between that and the defense, I mean, we went into the season thinking, okay, Zim's going to start against lefties and he's going to come in late for defense. And that hasn't happened at all. Josh Bell deserves to be the everyday first baseman, and if Zim does choose to come back next year, suppose if there's a DH in the National League, that would open up some doors, but if not, it may be truly a bench role and not even a part-time role like he was supposed to be in this year.
0: If you go by OPS plus, this is the second best season of Josh Bell's career. His career best season was 2019, but this 2021 season is better than anything Josh Bell did prior to 2019, and better than what Josh Bell certainly did in 2020 when he when he had that down season. For the Pirates. So, really good to see that. He continues to hit well. You know, it was not a great night offensively for the Nationals. They only finished with three hits, three runs on three hits. I mean, I guess you say that's efficient. Mats did work five walks in the game, but a guy who got on base once again, multiple times in the game, was Lane Thomas. So, here's someone who, you know, the consistency, and we had had the conversation with Lane of, all right, he's doing well, but what does this mean? What can this guy actually be? Every game, it feels like, with the exception of like a handful, He's doing things that stand out to you offensively. He's contributing offensively. And it really is refreshing, you have to say, because this was not the case with Victor Robles when he was an ad starting center fielder and uh, every game leadoff batter. But Lane Thomas on Friday night, one for three, RBI single and a walk. He in a Nationals two-run second inning has a two-out full count RBI single to left field for a two-nothing Nats lead, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. And then in the top of the eighth, he draws a leadoff seven pitch walk. So, you know, I know the thing with Lane Thomas remains of, is this really real? But with each passing game, it becomes at least a little more real. And I know we we hit on this recently. More and more, I think it is kind of feeling like, while you can't guarantee him as your everyday center fielder to begin next season, it's very much a possibility at this point. And with all of the other things the Nationals have to address this offseason, I don't want to say it's something you cross off the list, but at least it's something you can put to the back burner this offseason. It's not your top priority. You may have your leadoff guy for next year in Lane Thomas.
1: Yeah. And I think if nothing else, he deserves a shot to come to spring training and and a real chance to win the job. Now, in theory, that could be in left field if they want to go out and get a center fielder or if they think that Victor Robles is going to turn it around. You know, you could end up with both of them in some capacity. But what Thomas has done, absolutely bare minimum, he deserves to come to spring training with a real shot at winning an everyday job. And he's basically been with them for a month now. He went into Friday's game with 0.9 war, according to baseball reference, and did some good things in this game. So I'm going to go out on a limb and hope that he gets up to one war now after that game. So that's one war in one month. I know we can't do this, but if in theory he played exactly the same way for the entire season, that's six war. That's outstanding. That's all-star. That's like borderline MVP caliber. Okay. obviously, I know that's not what would actually happen if he did play every day, but it's just to point out how good it's been in a compressed window here since he's joined the team to the extent that even if he had a down month, even if he struggled the rest of the way, I think we've seen enough here to say there's something there and we want to see more of it and he deserves a shot to to be in the mix next year.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't think there's any question about that. The slash line continues to be impressive with Lane Thomas as well. 101 plate appearances for the Nats. 314 batting average, 406 on base, 523 slugging. So our opinions of the... Prospects acquired in a sell off will change and devolve. But as things stand right now, is he not the number one guy in terms of who has impressed you the most? You know, I mean, for a while it felt like Josiah Gray's been a little off lately. We'll see what happens in this next start. But in our uh, daily changing rankings of these prospects or just the guys who've leapt out to us the most, it's Lane Thomas, especially with the backstory, right? The trade that brought him here, that John Lester trade, which already is taking on this like, you know, legendary connotation of the Nats somehow con the Cardinals into giving up some. Something for Lester and ends up being a guy who would be an MVP candidate if he played for all six months this season. So said Mark Zuckerman uh, on this installment of the podcast. It's
1: exactly what I said. Put it down. That's exactly what I said. Yes.
0: Riley Adams was the National starting catcher on Friday night, and he has a triple. It feels to me like the Mets have had a lot of triples lately, uh, which is a good thing. But Riley Adams, one for four, RBI triple, and a couple of strikeouts, two runs second inning, a one out RBI triple to left field on a ball that got past the Pirates left fielder, Anthony Alford, who failed in his attempt at a diving forward backhanded catch. That's like every triple. The outfielder does something that he probably shouldn't have done, but it ends up being a triple. But any surprise that Adams was the starting catcher, or did you maybe kind of suspect this would happen?
1: Well, I mean, maybe because they're facing the lefty, although that guy only pitched two innings. Uh, maybe that had a little bit to do with it as far as a matchup thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we might, just because Ruiz has been a little underwhelming, like we've discussed, and Adams has been so good that maybe instead of um, one or two starts a week, it could become two or three, possibly. We'll see. I, I would assume that Ruiz is going to catch Josiah Gray on Saturday, so that may have had something to do with it. And then would you bring him back for a day game on Sunday, or would you go to Adams? So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. Kind of like last weekend when Adams caught the first game of that five-game series, it sort of set him up now to catch three for the weekend. So, I don't know. I think the more he does this, the more you say, well, we have to find ways to get him in there without sacrificing the looks you need to get at Ruiz. But we're getting to a point where we just need to start seeing something from Ruiz. <laughs> Not to be cynical about it. And, and obviously, it's still very minimal of uh, his opportunities that he's had so far. But at some point, you just you want to see something that makes you say, oh, okay, there it is. That's what th- we've been talking about. That's what they've been hoping to see. And so far, we haven't quite seen that yet.
0: Yeah, I thought it was notable that Adams got this start on Friday night, because like you said, it does set him up to catch two of the three games in this series. And if you're giving K. ruiz this good faith shot to be the number one catcher the rest of the way, you're not setting up Riley Adams to potentially catch two of the three games in this series.
1: Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit frednats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates.
0: So we had the news that came out prior to this game, and that was the suspensions of Sean Nolan and Davey Martinez. So MLB, not that long before first pitch on Friday, puts out a press release saying that Sean Nolan has received a five-game suspension and an undisclosed fine for, as MLB said in its press release, quote, intentionally hitting, end quote, Freddie Freeman of the Atlanta Braves. I just found that kind of funny that even MLB didn't buy what Sean Nolan had to say after that game.
3: Super humid out compared to places we've been playing. And, you know, it just happens. Balls slip out of your, you know, out of your hand. Rosin for me doesn't do much.
0: Now, in the press release, MLB said that Sean Nolan is appealing the suspension. Uh, More on that in a moment. MLB also announced that Davey Martinez had received a one-game suspension and an undisclosed fine. This is how it normally goes. The thrower of the pitch and the manager of the pitcher who threw the pitch each get suspended. Davey served his suspension on Friday night. Before we get to how ridiculous it is that nothing is happening to Braves reliever Will Smith, is Nolan appealing or is he not appealing? Because I saw what you tweeted and that was it looked like Nolan was in fact beginning the serving of his suspension on Friday night.
1: Yeah. So the official announcement from MLB, which came out a little before 5.30, only about an hour before game time, was that he was appealing, which in 99% of cases is what players always do, even in the obvious clear-cut ones. And that's the union usually just kind of doing it on their behalf. And they have a hearing at some point and MLB decides whether to reduce it or not. And then they end up serving however much time. And then it was actually after the game started that the Nationals informed us that he had dropped the appeal and that he was already starting to serve the suspension. So I don't know exact timing of all this. I do wonder if somebody said to him, hey, you know what? It's five games. We have Josh Rogers starting this one. We can get through five games without you. But after that, we might need you again. So why don't you just take these five games off right now? Like, we know what you did. You know what you did. You're probably not going to, with a straight face, be able to convince MLB to reduce that suspension. Why don't you just take it right now? That's my hunch of what was happening behind closed doors. But, you know, as far as how this works, this is sort of the standard operating procedure. I mentioned it the other night after it happened. I even said possibly up to seven games because I have seen that, but it's usually a minimum of five for a starting pitcher because that's one start that he misses. And the manager always gets it a well, even if Davey had nothing to do with it, when it's a case where... It's not just a rogue pitcher. Like we know that there was something that instigated it the night before and nobody was surprised that it happened the next day. They are always going to slap the manager with a one-game suspension for at minimum not putting a stop to it or making sure that nothing happened. And you can like it. You can not like it. We can get into why it happens to them and not to the guys who actually started the whole thing. But this is pretty much standard procedure for MLB when it comes to these matters.
0: So with Davey, I think it's almost kind of funny that he gets suspended. He's kind of been suspended for a while here because he's been on crutches. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's the end of the world for him to not be able to actively manage on Friday night. And I don't know about you. I never buy that these managers, when they're suspended, are actually you know serving the suspension. Like if Davey wants something done in the game, I'm sure he can communicate that to Tim Bogor that Davey wants that thing done in the game. I think with Nolan, it's interesting because I would have thought that, OK, if he appeals You know, at least maybe the suspension might get reduced by a game just because, again, Nolan didn't start this. And I thought that maybe, just maybe MLB would kind of see that aspect of it. I do think it is ridiculous, though, that the retaliator gets punished and the instigator gets nothing. I find that to be really absurd. And I don't think that sends a very good message. Now, I understand it, right? Like, You don't want the back and forth, and you know there is an aspect of this that's immature. Of well, he started it, you know, like you know, two kids fighting or something like that. And Freddie Freeman, of course, had nothing to do with it. But like again, put yourself in the national shoes. The Braves initiated this with what Will Smith did to Juan Soto. So should the Nats have just taken it and said, "Well, you know, it's not, it's not right," you know, turn the other cheek? Like no, if you're a human being, especially. If you're playing a a professional sport and you know you're an alpha male and you've got all this testosterone going on, like all pro athletes do, you're gonna want to retaliate. And honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, there's nothing wrong with standing up for yourself, standing up for your team, and that's what the Nationals were doing there. So, if you want to punish Sean Nolan, I get it. But for nothing to happen to Will Smith, I I don't like that. MLB's got to take a look at itself in the mirror and be like, why? Why is this the message we continually send? If you start it, that's okay. But if you strike back, that's not okay. That, to me, is not right.
1: So I'm going to take you back to the uh, probably most famous beanball incident in Nationals history, which was Hunter Strickland and Bryce Harper. And I remember Bryce later on telling us this, and probably off the record, but I think at this point it's safe to put it out there. So remember, Strickland had a grudge against him for years since the playoff series when Bryce homered off him and enjoyed it too much or whatever it was that he did against the code. And Strickland waited three years to get his chance at him again and intentionally plunked him. And Harper charged them out and set off this whole brawl that really one of the craziest brawls the Nationals, one of the only brawls Nationals have ever been involved in. And what ends up happening is both Harper and Strickland end up getting suspended. And ultimately, Strickland got more games and Harper was able to appeal his and get it reduced a little bit. I don't remember the exact numbers, but he was able to get it reduced. And I remember at the time thinking like, okay, Bryce, why not just take it? Like you you just hurt yourself and your team by charging the mound because you just got suspended for it. If you just take it, take your base, MLB will come down hard on Strickland. And what he said is no. He felt like he had to go out there in order for Strickland to be punished. That if he doesn't do it, then it probably slides by. And now maybe the Nationals try to retaliate later in the game or the next game. And it's exactly what just happened in this scenario. The Nationals get punished for Hunter Strickland being an idiot. And so in a convoluted, bizarre way, Bryce charged the mound to ensure that Strickland would get punished for it. And that's the backwards logic that we have in Major League Baseball when it comes to these situations.
0: I think that makes actually a lot of sense. Like That actually makes perfect sense, what Bryce Harper said to you guys years ago. I know that this isn't a perfect analogy, but if you think about it like in police terms, if you're walking down the street and someone punches you completely unprompted and for no reason, and you punch back, and the cop arrests you and not the person who punched you first, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous, right? That's kind of what this is. Now, again, that's not a perfect parallel, because Freddie Freeman had nothing to do with any of this. But it's like, you don't punish the person who was responding, you punish the person who started it. So, you know, I just find that odd. But again, whatever. Let's think about this. Do you think Nolan was told to do this? Or do you think Nolan did this on his own. You know, Davey very specifically used the language with you guys after that game of, I've never told a pitcher to hit a batter. You know, that seems kind of, uh, that seems like something like a lawyer would say, like, say it like that, because that's technically true, right? I didn't tell him anything. I mean, do you think Davey ordered the code red? Or do you think Sean Nolan kind of knew he had to do it and didn't need to be told to do it?
1: So this is one of those things that whenever I'm done with my career, and I have a chance to start talking to guys, really talking to them about the things that they don't discuss when they're active and they know that I can't print it because I'm not still active. This is one of the things I want to find out. How do these things really go down? Okay. I mean, I don't think there's a team meeting and Davy Martinez saying, hey, we're throwing at Freddie Freeman tonight. I don't think it happens like that. That that would be pretty foolish on a lot of people's part to do it like that. The question is, are there subtle hints given? Is it just kind of understood that this is what you do? We all know it. You, you hear chatter in the in the clubhouse about, oh, man, I can't believe they did that. And, oh, you know, uh, Will, you know Will Smith is going to get Freddie Freeman plunked in the end or something like that, you know, that then the pitcher just kind of understands, OK, well, you know what? I'm starting tomorrow. I guess it's my job to do that. I don't know the answer because it's one of those taboo things that guys just don't like to talk about. But it is something that I would be fascinated someday to really get the full story on how these things go down. Like you, I kind of think there is a very carefully worded way of how they say these things and that a manager makes sure that he doesn't have to explicitly tell someone to do it to allow him that plausible deniability and that either it's because there's whispers or it's just kind of understood within a clubhouse, this is what you do, that a pitcher goes and does it. In theory on his own volition, but chances are he... He knows it because there's also the whole thing of, well, if I don't do it, then how are they going to treat me when I come back to the clubhouse at the end of the game?
0: Knowing what we know about Mike Rizzo, my guess would be he has no problem that Sean Nolan did this. He may well have given Sean Nolan a pat on the back. And whatever that fine is, I would not be surprised at all if old Mikey Mike covers that and then some for Sean Nolan. That's just a guess, just a hunch. But uh, I could see old Rizzo being just fine with that. Well, game two of this series at the Pirates is on Saturday evening at 6.35. And the pitching matchup is Josiah Gray versus Will Crow, the uh, former Nationals prospect. The Nats took Will Crow in the second round of the 2017 MLB Draft out of South Carolina. This is another guy who was with the Nationals, you know, relatively high draft choice. Uh, Nats, you know, it ended up not really working out well for him here. Although, you know, it's not like he had a ton of time at the major league level with the Nats. He's not doing well with the Pirates this season. We should note that 22 games, including 21 starts. He has an ERA of 594. But dare I say this is a big start? Question mark for Josiah Gray off back to back bad outings, you know, facing a bad team in the Pittsburgh Pirates. I'd like to see Josiah Gray be really good on Saturday evening, and uh, it's not gone so well for him over these last two starts, as we know.
1: I think a lot of people would like to see him be very good <laughs> in this one, or certainly not be as bad as he was the last two times out. Because happens once, you say, "Oh, it's that's the exception; it's an outlier." Happens twice, yeah, you're getting a little concerned here. If it happens three in a row, we got a problem. Especially if it's against a pretty weak Pirates lineup. So, yeah, I do think it's an important start for him just to put to rest any doubts anybody has about what he is and what's going on with him and, you know, what kind of uh, vibe we should have about him going into the offseason. So I know he's been working on some things, some mechanics things with Jim Hickey. We talked about after the last start how he was flying open. A lot of all his pitches were missing the same side of the plate, the arm side. I know that's something they've been working on. I'll be watching for that early in the game on Saturday Although, actually, I'm off Saturday, so I may not be watching the game. I'll have to take everyone's word for it, whatever happens. But I think it's fair to say it is kind of a big start for him. Not even just the results, but just how he looks. And does he have that poise again? Does he, you know, resemble the guy that we all got so excited about in the first five starts, as opposed to who we saw in the last two?
0: You see, we talked ninth inning strategy for Nats Pirates game one. We have labeled game two a must-do-well outing for (laughs) Josiah Gray. Who says these games don't matter? in the thick of September between the Nationals and the Pirates. Yeah, Josiah coming off what happened in that 13-6 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park this past Sunday afternoon. Six runs in three innings. He gave up two home runs. He gave up two doubles. He only had two strikeouts. Uh, Yeah, it's not gone well for him here lately. We know he's better than this. First five starts with the Nats, he had an ERA of 289. You can always email us here at the Nats Chat Podcast, Podcast at gmail.com. want to thank James Bailey, for a very nice email he wrote, big supporter of the podcast. We appreciate that. Got a good email from Joel Charney on Josh Bell. I thought this would be a good time to get into this off what Josh did on Friday night. Writes Joel, so on Josh Bell, with all the downs and ups of Bell's season this year, his numbers are right in line with his career norms. I've followed Bell closely since he came up with the Pirates, and if there's one thing I've learned, it's that you can't cherry-pick stretches with him. He has months- Where he looks like an all star, notably May to June 2019, and months where he looks awful, like April to May 2021. But somehow it all seems to even out over the course of the year to produce a solid player, but not more than that. My conclusion is the same as yours keep him for 2022, hope he goes on one of his amazing tears in June and July, and see what you can get for him at the trade deadline. Meanwhile, If the Nats find enough pitching in the offseason to be competitive, then no harm in keeping him for the year and letting him walk in free agency, especially if draft pick compensation is still in place, parentheses, admittedly doubtful. Yeah, I mean, this is getting ahead of ourselves, but next season is a contract season for Josh Bell. He does fit the profile of guys who don't get paid big money anymore, right? The big, burly first baseman who are known primarily for hitting and not much more, although he's been better defensively than we thought. So maybe he's more well-rounded than we had considered. He's not as young as you might think, although, I don't know, maybe people listening are quite aware of where he's at. You know, he's in his late 20s, so you would be encountering that thing of giving a guy money as he's going into his 30s. So contractually, it is kind of interesting with Josh Bell But yeah, I think Joel's right about that. He is streaky. You really do have to take the season in its entirety with him. But even as you do that this season, the numbers are quite nice for Josh Bell.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty smart email in a lot of ways. And there's a reason that certain guys have track records. And it's why they don't get too high or too low when things aren't going well or things are going well over the course of a season. Because they feel like at the end of the year their numbers are going to be what they were supposed to be and i think that's where josh is going to end up this year you know i i've put out all the numbers since may 13th cuz that's the the point that he, he hit the low point of the 133 batting average and what he's done since then just to to show how good he has been but obviously at the end it all adds up together and you get a final total for the season and i think it's going to be good numbers not great numbers which is fine you know absolutely fine now i tend to agree with the thoughts about next year i don't think i would be really seriously talking about an extension this winter, partly because of him and and like you just outlined, but also we don't really know what this team is going to be in the next couple of years. If you were sure that they're going to be ready to win and you were sure that he's a big part of that, then maybe you do make a push for it, but you don't really know that yet. And we also don't know, is there a DH yet moving forward in the National League? Because that could play a big role in giving a long-term deal to somebody Like that going into his 30s, because that gives you some, some cushion on the back end of a contract. But I think the situation they're in, let it play out. He'll make probably nine, maybe 10 million in arbitration next year, which is perfectly fair for someone like him. Let him go, see how he does in the first half, and then see where the team's at. If they are in a position where they can sell some players on expiring contracts like they did this year, sure, see what you can get for him. If they are contending, or if you think, you know what? We actually think he could be a part of this when we're ready to win again. Then you make the effort at that point to re-sign him. I think stick with what you have for now. Nothing to be too worried about and re-evaluate this next
0: year. Been notable too, this left field thing with Bell. We haven't necessarily seen it like in the immediate recent history, but it has been more of a thing. Like there have been multiple games here over the last, I don't know, few weeks where Davey has shifted Bell to left. You know, they've done the double switch thing, things like that. So that is maybe an added dimension to his game. Like we've noted, he's drawing more walks. That's been good. He's better defensively than we thought he would be. So it it is a more well-rounded Josh Bell that we're seeing as this season goes on. And that's obviously a good thing. Well, you tell us what you think. You can always email the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. If you have a voice memo you'd like to share with us, you have a prediction for 2022. We're collecting those right now. If you have a tale of October, 2019, uh, let us have it. Record yourself Saying whatever you have to say in your smartphone, then email that file to us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet the pod as well, at nats underscore chat. You can get yourself a natchat podcast t shirt by going to natchatpodcast.square.site. All nationals radio highlights on natchat are courtesy of 1067 the fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the natchat podcast. And we leave you now with this voice memo. It is a prediction for 2022. This comes to us from Eric in the Dominican Republic.
3: Hey Al, Mark, and Tim. This is Eric from the DR. I have my rose-colored glasses on thinking about the Nats in 2022. And uh, starting with the pitching staff, I'm just going to assume that Josiah Gray and Kate Cavalli come up. And uh, they do well enough to be third, four, maybe your fifth starter. I think they cut bait on Joe Ross and Austin Voth. Hang on to Fetty because he needs some depth. And then really hope that Corbin can get around a 3.7 ERA and that somehow, some way Strasburg can give you something, maybe as a more of a curveball changeup pitcher, not working on the fastball too much. But maybe they go spend a little bit of money on somebody like I'm thinking Marcus Stroman. I've always liked him. Uh, or maybe someone like Kevin Gossman and tighten up that. And instead of having an ace, maybe they have, I don't know, two or three number twos and threes. But I would say also, why don't they go out and get Kyle Schwarber again? He seemed to love playing here. We loved him. Maybe give him a two-year deal. And then maybe uh, go on the cheap for somebody like a 33-year-old Eduardo Escobar or a Kyle Seager. Or maybe even spend a little money on someone who's a little older but has had great years like Marcus Simeon. And then just give the guys like Kibum and Garcia opportunity. And uh, I think that's a pretty good team going into 2022. So I don't know what you guys think. These are my rose-colored glasses, and boy, I sure hope they, uh, they work. Here's the 0-1. Swinging a
2: fly ball, well hit left field. Back on this one, Smith toward the track, near the wall, and it's off the top of the wall, and gone! It's gone! He doinks it off the top of the wall for his third home run of the day! It's Kyle Schwarber's world! Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.